Okay, we're connected. We're going to have some little intro stuff if I can get the mouse right, and we will kick off the old Saturday get together. Oh, for a voice like thunder and a tongue to drown the throat of war. When the senses are shaken and the soul is driven to madness, who can stand? When the souls of the oppressed fight in the troubled air that rages, who can stand? When the whirlwind of fury comes from the throne of God and the frowns of his countenance drive the nations together, who can stand? When sin claps his broad wings over the battle and sails rejoicing in a flood of death, when souls are torn to everlasting fire and fiends of hell rejoice upon the strain, oh, who can stand? Cause this. Oh, who can answer at the throne of God? The kings and the nobles of the land have done it. Hear it not, heaven. Thy ministers have done it. Yep. Okay. All right. Whoever's got the mic open, could we back that down a little bit, please? Uh, good morning. Saturday, the, I guess today is the 19th. Uh, Radio Ranch Saturday edition is kind of an interesting thing. We started about a year or so ago as uh, the awareness and people looking for answers started getting greater in number. And I thought, well, and we might as well have a Saturday show. Uh, and uh, for the folks that if there's any folks that still do have gainful employment, uh, that they could call in and get their uh, questions answered. So that's why we're here on Saturdays. And actually, it's turned out we're, uh, we've had some really, really good shows on Saturday because it's a little bit different, it just seems like, as opposed to the weekly shows. So Roger Sales, your host here this morning on the Radio Ranch. It is, as I said, the 19th of August. And uh, as to our opening, who can stand? Who can stand? Well, I can promise you, you'll stand a whole lot more erect and better and probably for a longer amount of time if you know what the hell you're talking about, okay? Because we're dealing with people that know this stuff inside out. They've been messing with it for thousands of years, okay? And that's what uh, I'd like to get into today because there's a lot of, uh, well, misconceptions floating around our community, have been since i got in at 31 years ago before we jump into that i'll let paul come on and do the cameo of all these different if you're not out playing laser tag with the cat uh come on and tell us the platforms we're on paul and get your lovely resonant voice in here on the show Uh, it's not resonant i'm connected through the conference line so i had to I had to to go up in the mid and highs instead of the lows, but that's okay. That's all right. I can, all right. I can handle that. Um, so can we. We're on uh, eurofolkradio.com this morning, and we're also on a mirror stream of radio.globalvoiceradio.net. Both of those links are available right on the Exposed the Matrix website. Uh, there's also links for new students and some highlighted things that'll get you off, kick-started into off to your a, own freedom. Off you got to know a, who you are. Yeah. 
And you got to know who they are, even more importantly. And that means learning how they think. And uh, it it's sad that we've got to think like these scumbags but it goes back to sun tzu if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy you got no chance of winning any battle and unfortunately that's the condition they've got us in we don't know who they are and we don't know who we are and so this that's, that's what this is all about well that's what the program's all we about right there who we are we have to know where we are and who we are and where they are and who they are and we have to draw a line between well we don't have to think like them no to know how they think very correct know what they're doing and you have to know the tools that they use and this law thing is the foundational part of it okay um i guess what kind of uh, was the progenitor of this show paul you're with us i think you checked in 41 on the air there uh, new listener, Paul, and uh, out in uh, California, Northern California, and you said something about going to court and admiralty law. Okay, and that—that's one of my pet peeves in this industry, and that's research group of all these years is this admiralty maritime law stuff, and uh, it's amazing how much that information floats around. And so you hear it from somebody else. They heard it from somebody else. And so it's gospel, and that's because you don't understand the things that are happening under there. Let me turn this stupid notification down here so that doesn't interrupt us. And so you repeat it like Polly the parrot. Um this law stuff is extremely interesting. Um, I would never know what I know today if it wasn't for John W. Benson and his lifelong study of law outside of law schools. And he had these concepts down pat. I wish I could regurgitate more, uh, really. I've been able to uh, reach back and get some of the memories I had of those seminars and my advantage was when john gave a seminar it wasn't anything technical it was just one of those great big pieces of uh, paper maybe a couple of feet by three three four feet by a couple of feet and he'd write on those and then it's like a pad and you can turn the page over and get a new one and write on that and he'd turn it over well after the seminars i i grabbed those pads and I took those pads home with me and uh, and used those as study tools. Um, and so I guess the probably the most important thing we touched on the other day, Ken said something about it, and it came out. And But I suppose the way to start this is with that formula. But I would like to say first, I want to thank Brent Winters. Uh, one of the things Brent has done to me from doing these shows with him for so many years is uh, he, he's he got a wonderful gift of breaking things down into the dialectic. It's either or, okay? And if you take this whole big law thing and you can break it down to two schools, one school is nature, nature's God, the common law, and the other is man-made laws or the law of the city. And all the different groups of law fall under that, okay? So it's either common law or man-made law, basically. And uh, that's what I said the other day, that the statement that John used to make from the sta- from the podium was, the battle we fight today is the battle that's been fought from the beginning of time. And that is Lex Rex, the law of man, the law of the king, versus common law. 
That's the battle we're in today. That's what they're separating us from. They hate the common law. Pardon me, Paul? One more thing. Um, what they're doing today almost exactly mirrors what they've done throughout history. So sure. if you learn the history, and I think that's why why they uh, they rewrite the uh, history books. You know, the winner gets to write the story. So they've been rewriting the history books and taking out the actual accounts of what they've done and how they've done it throughout time because they never changed their plan. Yep. They lack creativity. And they figure, well, we did it once. It worked again. Let's do it again. Let's keep doing it over and over and over. They'll never know it. They're going. One, one big piece of understanding for me was a comment that was made by um, Congressman Lewis T. McFadden in one of his House speeches. And I read that book. I highly advise that book. We've got it up on PDF there on the site, don't we, Paul? Um, The 31 Collective Speeches of Lewis T. McFadden. If you want to get, I don't know of a more accurate historical view of that period around the bankruptcy and leading up to it and what these scoundrels were setting up and what they pulled off than to go read those 31 collective speeches of Lewis T. McFadden. The guy was a banker for his whole career. He knew the whole financial industry. Then he got elected to Congress, and from the time he was elected in the teens, right around World War One, he was automatically put as the head of the House Banking Committee. The House used to have a banking committee, evidently. Obviously, they've gotten rid of that. But he was the head of the House Banking Committee from the time he got elected till the time they killed him on the fourth attempt. They ended up poisoning him at the Waldorf Astoria at a banquet. But uh, he was a big nemesis to those folks. Mr. McFadden was a great statesman. Uh, I mentioned it the other day. I don't, I've never heard of anybody else that had this happen to him. The last time he ran for Congress in his district, it was northeast Pennsylvania, somewhere up there. The last time he ran, he was nominated by the Republicans, the Democrats, and the Populist Party. All three parties nominated the same guy. I've never heard of that before in our political history, okay? And and that's the kind of guy he was. I encourage people to go back and read that. Um, I read it when I first got into this, and I was so green that a lot of it went over my head because uh, uh, I just didn't have those understandings. Just people that are new to this understand that perfectly. Uh, but I used a number of uh, citations or quotes from his speeches in my book. And uh, I was going back and looking at that one day. And he made a comment in there in one of his speeches. I think it was probably around 33. And he said uh, he was railing about a speech that was given by a little Jew named Jacob Frank, who was the head legal counsel of the Department of Agriculture. Instructive to know that they rode many of the communists in through agriculture. Obviously, they had being communists. They got control of that early. Uh, uh, Harry Dexter White came in through there. Alger Hiss came in through there. Several others that later turned out being communists came in through the Department of Agriculture. I knew that at that point when I was re-looking at this. And so that caught my eye. And then what they did that year 
was uh, for him to give a speech, and you can go look this up on the Internet. It's there. It's called Experimental Jurisprudence and the New Deal. Experimental Jurisprudence and the New Deal. And I actually went and looked up the, uh, found that after his reference there. And uh, back at that time, I was doing shows with Al Adisk, uh, pretty pretty notorious guy in the Patriot legal community, if you don't know about him. Uh, anyway, Al and I were doing shows for about a year and a half, and I dug that up and sent it to Al. And I remember his comment was, he said, that's the most damning government document I've ever read experimental jurisprudence in the new deal now what they did that year was they took the organization called the american association of colleges and law schools it's still around and they moved their annual convention to new year's eve in chicago now, I don't know the rest of their annual conventions. I wrote them an email and asked them, have you ever moved any other conventions to Chicago on New Year's Eve? And, of course, didn't get a reply. Um, but that, I thought, what, they're going to take the American Associations of Colleges and Law Schools and move their annual convention to Chicago on New Year's Eve so this little Jew can come in there and give this speech. You know, they always have to tell us what they're doing to us, you know experimental jurisprudence and the new deal and it got me thinking i thought well this was in 33 if they had that kind of influence in that organization to move the annual convention to chicago on new year's eve uh then uh, they probably had control of it a number of years before that and uh, if they could do things like move the annual convention and just by the scope and name of the organization, the American Association of Colleges and Law Schools, don't you think that they were also guiding curriculums back in that time? I think it would be not too far a step, not too far a step to say that they had. And I'm going to get to a point here in a second, okay? And uh, so – that led me to the idea and the realization that all these people that are going through law schools are not being exposed to a lot of this information because the curriculums expose uh, are controlled by this group and that was further buttressed to me when i remembered a story that john told us and i've mentioned it on the air a few times um he, uh, at some point later on in his life he called the dean of one of the law schools out there in utah and i don't know which one but he got the dean on the phone and so he was telling him i'd like to come back to law school and we'd love to have you and yeah we're this and we're that and he's blowing up the uh positives of the school and uh john says well i'm particularly interested in one thing and he says oh okay what's that and he said i'm particularly interested in the legal concept and meaning behind the word person and the dean goes, oh, hey, no problem. Yeah, we teach that. Uh, we teach it in a, a elective course called jurisprudence. And uh, he said, when enough people sign up for the course, we teach it. And John very astutely asked him, he said, well, when was the last time you taught it? Um, uh, six years ago. So six graduating law classes had graduated from his law school without being exposed to the legal concept behind the word person, 
which is in almost every statute. All statutes are written for persons, things, or actions. Persons, things, or actions, with the majority of them written for persons. Okay? And so that shows you what they're doing here. And I liken it to, uh, I don't remember which tribe it was, but there was one of the Indian tribes out west that were just superb at tracking. Okay? And uh, what they would do is they'd, they'd track the cavalry, and then they'd go spy on them, you know, intelligence. And uh, they they let's just say in our minds, for example, here, they sneak up to the top of the hill there and look over the hill into the valley and see the cavalry feeding their horses or whatever. And then when they've gotten the information they wanted, they back out from where they were, and turn around backwards with a brush and they brush their footprints out as they back out that's what these guys do okay so uh with that in mind uh, uh i touched on it the other day the formula that runs the world this is really important folks i've never seen anybody else with this information okay and again, it's from John Benson. Um, the formula that runs the world is a very simple formula. I covered it, Ken. I see Ken's with us, Ken, the other day. And we got into it a little bit on another conversation. But it's uh, R plus D equals R. You can write it on a piece of paper. You can write it on the back of your forehead with your mind's eye. R plus D equals R. And that formula stands for rights plus duties equal remedies. Now, it's important to note, and the reason I teach it like this is because it's the way I was taught. Uh, Brent and I have got into conversations on this and on the air over the years. And Brent is, of course, he's an attorney. He's been around the law game for a long time. Okay. And so Brent says rights and duties are the same thing. Now, that's an interesting concept. It's not wrong. It's just a little more of an advanced understanding, okay? And then I heard Ed Vieira, who's a pretty famous attorney, a couple of Harvard PhDs. He's really big in the gun gun field. Probably some of you are familiar with some of his work, Edward Vieira. And I heard him being interviewed one night, and he said, uh, a right arises out of a duty. Well, that's interesting too and it's i can't say it's wrong but i can say that for these first-time people that are getting exposed to these concepts it's much easier to think of them as correlative a right you have a right you got a correlative duty and there's always a duty for a right okay and the example that i like to use is you have a right to life but you have a duty not to take someone else's life Okay, And you'll find, as you mess with this in your own minds, that it's always true. There's a, a right and a duty. And that's where the plus sign is right there. Okay, They're correlative. You can't have one like the old song, love and marriage. You know, can't have one without the other. Obviously an old song. Uh, but for our purposes here, that's the way I prefer to teach it because you people that are just new, and getting exposed to these concepts, that's an easier concept for you to grasp. 
Okay. And now we're talking about the conceptual part of this, which I try and hammer on. If you learn the concepts, the, you can go in and dig out all the minutia. You can't dig through the minutia to find the concept. They've got it hidden too well. Okay. So rights plus duties equal remedies. So you got two entities on the left, a right and a duty. And on the right, you just got one remedy. So, you know, if you've been around the legal patriot community for a while, our people are real good about talking about rights, aren't they? Oh, my constitutional rights. Well, you sorry, but the document only gives one set of rights. They're under the 14th Amendment. And they're called civil rights. And you don't get the political side of that, by the way. So... Um, so you got that situation. You very rarely hear them talking about duties. And you virtually never hear them talking about remedies. And it's as important on one side of the equation as both the other two combined. Okay. And, Paul, if you're listening, this is your comment the other day is what is is bringing this up. And I'm going to show you how to use this this formula. Okay. And so you said something about going to court and admiralty law. Okay. Well, you got to go back and apply this formula, okay? Because if you go in and at one point in the in the courses that we took years ago, John and and Glenn had come out with a little two sheet handout, um, mostly eight and a half by eleven, mostly on the first sheets, a couple of hangovers on the second sheet, and it's quite interesting. And if I'm, my eyes were better, I'd because I've still got that. I mean, I've kept some of this stuff, folks, for all these years. So, on the sheets were all the different bodies of law listed. There's four columns. It listed the law, body of law. There's another column where it listed what you call the presiding officer. There's another column that listed all the actions that are available to you. And then there was another column that listed the remedies. Okay, And so just to elaborate on this a little bit, it goes back to that formula, too. So there's seven or eight different bodies of law, and it was the highest one was the king's bench. And, uh, uh, of course, that's the highest court of common law in England. And there was equity, and then there was ecclesiastical law, and there was maritime law, and there was admiralty law, and there was merchant law, law merchant. And then he had a little column called the manorial law the law of the manor okay and so ken if uh well, it's probably even better with paul except your audio is better ken so i might bounce off of you a few questions here as we go forward so if i was yeah. to take okay all right well paul if let's just take paul because he's english okay paul if i was to take you back home in england in the old days and you were schooled up on this i could put a blindfold on you and spin you around to where you were disoriented and dizzy and we could walk in because i don't know where it is over there but it used to be that all these different courts were in the same little area Okay, and I could blindfold you and spin you around and walk you into one of those buildings. And Paul, knowing the background of all of this stuff, he'd know what court we were in by what they call the presiding officer, by what the different actions that were being taken, and what remedies were talked about. Even though he's blindfolded, because they're all different. Okay, 
It doesn't clear cut across all those bodies of law. They're different. You know, in the King's Bench, for example, is common law. You only have eight actions. Debt, retinue, detinue, I forgot all of them. But those are the only actions that can be brought in that court, in that body, in that group of law. Okay, And so you would know by what they call the presiding officer, what the documents that were being presented and remedies, if they were mentioned, you'd know which body of law you were in. Okay, And so the important part of this is that remedy thing over on the right. And that nobody ever talks about, okay? Because if you go back, and what remedies are being used against us? Well, you got, let's go back to your comment on admiralty. Uh, Paul, do you know the only remedy in admiralty law? Hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, well, the, they have to prove an international contract. No, 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 Paul, 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 you're off on a bad trail, man. Admiralty law is martial law on the water. There is no procedure. They come up flying a foreign flag. When they get up next to your boat, they yank it down and throw the Jolly Roger up. They invade your boat. They kick your ass. They take your stuff. That's the remedy. They kick your ass, and then they take your stuff. And that is called prize. P-R-I-Z-E. Okay, just hold on. You still got bad audio, so. Okay, so the prize is the only remedy in admiralty law, and there's no procedure. So you're saying contracts and all, that's procedure. This is martial law on the sea. Now, martial law on the land is armies. And when they kick your ass and take your stuff, they call that booty. So it's the same thing. One's on the land, one's on the sea, one's called prize, the other's called booty, and those are the only remedies, and there is no process except how they kick your ass. Okay? So my point being to take that formula and always look at, well, what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is this. Well, how do you arrive at the remedy? This. What body of law are we using? Bam, it identifies itself. And it ain't admiralty. Okay? More patriot mythology disinformation. Now, I try to be an optimist here. And I understand how that people arrived at that. They think we're under the Constitution, right? Well, we are under the 14th Amendment. But they think we're under the general Constitution. So they look in the original Constitution and they see that one of the bodies of law that the original colonies had was admiralty law. They can't figure out and put any of these other pieces together because they don't know the information. And so automatically it's admiralty law and that gets told to somebody else. And for 30 or 40 years that's been floating around our community and it's just flat wrong. Okay, so let's go through another one of those bodies of law, and uh, either either one of you, Ken and Paul, because y'all are some of the new guys here. Do you know what self? Ken's not on, Roger. Oh, he's not. I thought I saw his little thing up there. Okay, all right, Paul. Do you know what self-help remedies are, Paul? You ever heard of those? I've heard of them. I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean, and that's the general heading, okay, self-help remedies. The specifics are lien, levy, garnishment, and seizure. 
You heard of those? Yes. Those are self-help remedies. Where do they come from? They come from the Babylonian Merchant Code. They've been around for thousands of years and have had a high impact, which is what we're going to get into here. Okay. But these self-help remedies come from, and I, I, when we were promoting this the other day, I said, if you really want to get a good background on this, a good, solid, authoritative, accurate background, there's a book over on my other website. Paul, we ought to get that, maybe drag it over to the Matrix Docs. But it's a book that was published in the 1930s in John Hopkins University, and it's called Historical Jurisprudence. And it's a book about law from the beginning, okay? And the first 90 pages of that book are on the Babylonian Merchant Code. And I can't encourage, it's not difficult reading, it's not, it's very easy, okay? Not a lot of legal stuff and all the stuff you don't understand in there. It's just a 90-page introduction on the basics, the origin, and the workings of the Babylonian Merchant Code. That's what we call today. For thousands of years, it was called the Law Merchant, and now we call it the Uniform Commercial Code. And in fact, in the Uniform Commercial Code, there's a statement that says, anything not covered by this title reverts to the law merchant we're talking about the babylonian merchant code here now obviously the bible is rife with the phrase merchants of the earth what what law do you think the merchants of the earth use okay so this stuff's really kind of right in front of your face in fact if you read that 90 pages You'll find, very interestingly to me, when I read it, maybe one of the ways that this misinformation has come about was in Babylon, if you took out a loan for a trade caravan, remember, Babylon was the great center of commerce of the world, okay? If you took out a loan for a trade caravan, it was different if it was over land and over water. Uh, this is really kind of interesting here. If you took out a loan for a caravan that was over land and something happened to the caravan, you didn't come back, the family had to honor the loan. But if it was a caravan over water and you didn't come back, they were absolved of paying back the loan. Isn't that an interesting way that the Babylonians recognize God? The same way these guys recognize this affidavit when it's put in, they have to recognize God. Kind of an interesting thing I've just come to realize here fairly recently. So the way that that chapter starts, and I believe it's the very first sentence it says Babylon's great contribution to the world was they reduced everything in the society down to the abstract form of contract. This is where contracts came from. Okay. Now, 
you should know that there was two previous bodies of law. One of them I've just found out about. It was very short, very brief. I was watching a video on the Sumerians, and uh, it was talking about they found a culiform tablet that had ten things on it that was from a guy that was a mayor or a governor of a territory or uh, over a big city. And those were like, the if you come into our town and you rob somebody, we're going to cut your hand off, that kind of thing put your eye out or if you put somebody's eye out you owe the family and stuff like that so there was a predecessor to the code of hammurabi okay and the code of hammurabi was these same principles that were used by the sumerians which is the society that preceded the babylonians okay now what babylon did was perfect those two previous codes and polish it up and that's why it's called the babylonian merchant code okay so remember that nebuchadnezzar came over and took the tribes of judah and benjamin well we don't know if he took all the tribes all of them that were there in jerusalem jerusalem was high dollar territory it was like lahaina maui in those days okay and so Nebuchadnezzar went in, and he, he obviously didn't take everybody, okay? But the what, what I've heard fairly recently, the last couple of years, is that he went in and he got all the hierarchy of the society, all the blue bloods, and took them back into captivity into Babylon for 70 years, okay? Now, it's in, interesting to note that we've been in captivity for 90 years, the original Israelites were only in captivity for 70, all right? And then uh, I've heard that they also made them farmers on the outskirts of Babylon as a buffer to any potential enemies that were going to try and invade Babylon, which may be why they hate farming today, okay? So regardless, Nebuchadnezzar died. They left the ones in captivity and came back to Jerusalem bringing this Babylonian merchant code with them. They'd been ingrained in it for 70 years. Now, if you look back to the original part of when they came and conquered Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the it's the it's the real estate that everybody wanted the canaanites the edomites the malachites all these different tribes had been warring with judah and benjamin for jerusalem well when they came and took the leadership out and we don't know for sure i'm just kind of speculating here when they came and took the leadership out what do you think happened you know the old saying nature abhors a vacuum Well, if they took the leadership out of Jerusalem back in captivity, then there's a good chance that all those other tribes came in and kind of took over and intermixed with the ones that were left. Doesn't that make sense? So now you have the heathen-type pagan influence into the remnants of Jerusalem sitting there breeding and whatever they're doing for seven years and now the hierarchy comes back and gets plopped right in jerusalem with all of this babylonian stuff okay and by stuff i mean like what jesus called it when he confronted them years later what did he call it he called it the tradition of the elders the tradition of the elders 
But what, what was that? It was passed down from father to son, and it was only written down 500 years after they crucified Christ. Folks, that's twice as long as our country's been in existence. It wasn't written down until 500 years after they crucified Christ. And that is called the Sunoco version of the Babylonian Talmud. This rotten, filthy book that is the base roots of everything we're dealing with today. So when they came back from Babylon, they brought the tradition of the elders and they brought this Babylonian merchant code. Okay. It's all based on contract. And in Babylon, and it says in that book that I would encourage all of you to read, take the time to read. You'll get a basis on this that I don't know where else you can get it. Okay. Quite frankly. So when in Babylon they entered into a contract, they didn't have penalties perjury back then, okay? And so when someone signed a contract, the high priests of the temple would come in and say an incantation as they signed their signature to bind them to their signature, Who do you think the high priest became? How about the bankers? Also, in those days, in the early days of trade fairs, merchant get-togethers, the priests of the temple would come in and set the prices. So these are the ancient roots of what we're dealing with here today, okay? So let's go into a little bit here, because it's going to be very important for you to understand these self-help remedies, lean, levy, garnishment, and seizure. They're going to play very importantly into our story here in a minute. Those are called self-help remedies, and these are this is another one of these situations where what the idea and the concept and the application are not bad they're probably good but these guys know and understand this so well after dealing with it for so many years that they can weaponize it okay so here's what happens paul um and i'll use two types of contracts here okay the, the first one is just let's say you go buy a car, all right? And in that car contract, I, Paul, promise to pay so many payments and so much principal for so much interest for so many months. And in that contract, there's a legal paragraph called a recognizance. A recognizance. A recognizance, obviously, is from the base word, root word, recognize. Okay? And the recognizance is a statement in the contract that refers to another body of law. Okay? And in the car contract, they'll always use a recognizance that goes to your state statutes. 
because the legislature has gone in and certified this and given stipulations to it that if you don't pay your car your car payment in 60 days on the 61st day they can come seize it okay now there's a lot of validity to that if you missed your car payments and you were over here under common law what they'd have to do is come and bring an action against you in court. It'd have to get docketed. It'd have to wait till it came up for trial. You'd have to go through some sort of a trial, bench trial or jury trial. They'd have to get a verdict. When they get the verdict, they go file the judgment. Then they can come take your car. And that's a timely process and cumbersome. And by the time they get to the point where they can get their car back that you hadn't been paying for, it might be six or eight or ten months, and you may be in tier del fuego okay so what self-help remedies do is they write the remedy into the contract so it says i agree to abide by all of the statutes according to california code so and so section so and so that covers this payment schedule and all they do is automatically say see the 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 remedy is built into the contract you signed you agreed to that okay and so that's what triggers them come and grab in your car is this recognizance in the contract that you signed when you purchased it. Okay. Now let's take another type of contract. This is called, it's in the specialty contracts of the Uniform Commercial Code. It's called for thousands of years a Jewish shetar. Jewish shetar, S-H-E-T-A-R. By the way, over there, right around where that book is listed, there's an article that was written there back in the 70s. It was written by a Jewess named Judith Shapiro, who was published in the Georgetown Law Review. You'll like this, Paul. The title of it is How the Jewish Shetar Invaded the English Common Law. And it's the whole story, very, very scholastically written. Okay? And it gives the whole story. Pardon me? Pardon? I would love to get my hands on that. Well, go to Sovereign. Okay, go to SovereignToSurf.com, and it's over there on the right opposite my picture. Okay? And so what Judith Shapiro neglects to tell us in the very scholarly article of what a Jewish shetar is. In your country, from 1285 up until today, I guess, it's called a statute staple bond or contract. Statute staple bond or contract. Guess what we call it in our country, Paul? No guesses? No guesses. How about a 10 4? Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Steal my thunder. Go ahead. 1040 form. 1040 form is a statute staple bond or contract, is a Jewish shetar. Now, this is what invoked our common day uh, uh, tax system, by the way, in your country, Paul, and it started in 1285. 
the roots of today's income tax go back to 1285 in England. Okay, we won't do that lecture today. I can give you the whole story on it because my teachers were the experts in the world on the tax system. Okay, but again, what they're using is a contract called the statute staple 1040 shetar however you want to identify it but to make it that type of contract it has to have two elements one it has to have a recognizance two it has to be signed under seal which means in our parlance penalty of perjury so you could write out a 1040 form that you owe the IRS a trillion dollars and not sign it and send it into them, and they'll send it back to you. It has to have a recognizance, and it has to be signed under seal. So the recognizance in a 1040 form is, I agree to recognize and abide by all the conditions and terms of Title 26 CFR. Code of Federal Regulations, Internal Revenue Code. You agree to abide by it when you sign and send in your 1040. Clear? Pretty simple. Pretty simple stuff. Okay. So what if you don't abide by all the terms and conditions? What do they do? They come grab your stuff. They seize your car. They garnish your wages. They levy and seize your bank account. They do all those things, don't they? Well, that's process, isn't it? How can it be admiralty law with prize when they're having to go through all this process? Get my drift? Okay, so these... These self-help remedies are real powerful. They can be used like anything else. They can be used for good, and they can be used to intimidate and terrorize your ass and make you think that these guys have got all this power that they can just swoop in from the sky and start grabbing your things. No, they've got a process behind it. This isn't high seas battle. This isn't martial law on the land. There's no process there. There's tons of process here. Okay? So those are self-help remedies, and they're really important. And I've thought over the years, as I think about these things constantly, that this is one of the real first engines of tyranny here is utilization of self-help remedies because the people don't understand it they don't understand that the process is involved all they know is some guy in a black outfit comes and grabs their car one morning okay and they got to have a lot of power to do that don't they and they don't understand the process and what's going on. And they misidentify it as stuff like prize. It's not prize. You reneged on your agreement in the 1040 form, and they came, utilized self-help remedies, lien levy garnishment and seizure, and they took your stuff. Okay? So any questions up to that point? 
Nope. Sounds good. Okay. So now let's go and look at that and see the effects of it. Okay. One of the reasons this information is so important to me personally, it may be to you too, may not be. I, to a lot of the people that, that this doesn't resonate with, this probably isn't going to make any difference anyway. But there's only been two times of 200 years apiece in the entire history of our planet, organized societies. Bob will come in here and tell me when they were wandering in the desert, but I don't consider that an example. Okay. There was two times in organized society in the history of our planet when men had God-given rights. Two, and only two. The first 200 years of Rome and the first 200 years approximately of our country. Those are the only two times, folks. Anybody under any organized society has had God-given natural rights. That's a pretty piss-poor track record, isn't it? Only two times for 200 years? Well, let's go back to the first time in Rome. Okay? Rome, for the first 200 years, was under a legal code called the Jus, J-U-S is Latin for law, Jus Civile, C-I-V-I-L-E. The law of the citizen, if you want to translate it that way. And they relied on ten tablets, almost like the Ten Commandments. Ten, maybe twelve, I forget. But they had these twelve, ten or twelve basic law maxims, canons, that they operated under, and they had a very formal court procedure. If if you'd been wronged and you wanted to challenge it, you basically had to do the common law court procedure. You had to get it on the docket, wait till it came up, get in, a, in front of your peers, get a judgment, take the judgment and register it, and then you could go get your remedy. So that was very similar to our country. Okay, First 200 years of Rome. So, Rome, in Rome, the attorney general was called a praetor. Many of you are familiar with that word, praetor, P-R-A-E-T-O-R, I believe is how it's spelled. And he had his own army. They were called the Praetorian Guards. Okay, And as Rome developed, it got to the point where the Praetorian guards were deciding who was going to be emperor. That's how strong that position is. Now, Rome, knowing that the power was in that position, they were smart about it. They said, we're going to appoint a praetor, and he can only have office for a year. Because they didn't want him amassing too much power. Okay, So... Generally, the praetor that was appointed would adhere to the laws as they'd been recognized and accumulated up to his tenure. Okay, So as Rome grew and started conquering other lands and becoming an empire, the merchants of the empires and the earth wanted to come to Rome because it was the center of all the commercial activity. You know, I mean, these merchants, they want to go where the action is, don't they? Well, they went to Rome. And with it, they brought their merchant law. 
And so while the Romans were having to go out and go through this real complicated process to achieve a remedy, the merchants had this self-help remedy stuff built in. And they just go and execute their remedy on the spot. And the Roman citizens saw that and wanted to take on the easy way of remedy from contract. And so it didn't happen all at once. It took about 200 years. But with these influences from Roman citizens going to the attorney general and going, hey, we want that easy way of remedy, man. Look at these merchants. And over 200 years, self-help remedies bringing in the merchant law were incorporated into the just seville, the law of the citizen. And after that process was complete, they called it the just gensum, or the law of the foreigner. So under the legal fiction that a citizen of Rome was a foreign merchant, the praetors changed the Roman law. And they changed it into what we know as the Roman civil law, where you've got an amalgamation, a mixture of both this merchant law and also this common law. Okay. Now, the Roman civil code. Paul, you got any guess of what the Roman civil law is today in our country? I keep picking on Paul here because he's new and he's a Brit and, uh, and and a lot of this information is aimed at him and these is groups. It the U- it's the United States Code. That's what I was going to say. Uh, is it the United- U.S. Code? It's, yeah, we, we were talking about it one day here on the air and somebody went off and did a search on it. The United States Code started in 1922, folks. They knew they were going to move up to this bankruptcy and this switch, and they wanted that Roman civil law there. The Remember, and it was Daryl that came on here one day and said, you know, it's misnamed. It's not the Civil War. It's the war to bring in the civil law. Man, is that accurate. Okay? Because we didn't have civil law before that. We had constitutional law, God-given rights. Well, and that's when everything moved to corporations, right? Well, and this corporation thing is interesting, and we can get into that too. Corporations have been around since Rome. It's not – well, the, the idea was it was perfected more in Amsterdam uh, as the Dutch East India – trading company started taking over the trade of the world and they couldn't get one person to risk having a ship lost and lose his fortune so they all started contributing into it so for limited liability and there's your start of corporations okay in a formal legal sense all right but um uh, see if I can remember where I was. Um, so it was code. this this 200 years of influence on the praetor incorporating self-help remedies mainly. They led. The remedy led. Not, not all the other. The remedy led to the change. Okay. 
And so that today is called the United States Code. We got, as I, as I talk on here, you know, we got three sets uh, of law books in the law library, okay? You got the, the organic statutes at large, you got the United States Code, and you got the Code of Federal Regulations, all right? So when a law is passed, it's passed by, it, it either originates in the House or the Senate, but both houses have to pass it, and if those bills don't agree, they have to go into a conference committee and hammer it out until they do. Then they send it to the president. Then he signs it. Then it goes into that first set of law books because it's considered to be constitutional, called the organic statutes at large. Then they pull it over into the United States Code, either whole meal or partial meal, whole cloth or partial cloth. And that determines in the United States Code, if you'll go look in the first volume, it may be in other volumes, I know it's in the first one, if you open the front page, it's going to have a list of 50 titles there. And they say, is this positive or non-positive law? This title positive law or non-positive law? What the hell does that mean? If they pull it over from the organic statutes at large in whole cloth, it's positive law because it's based on this lawful procedure. If, for example, Title 26, and you bring Title 26 over, it didn't have any place to come from. It was never passed by the Senate. It was never signed by the president. It was never in the organic statutes at large. It just appeared like hocus pocus. Boom. It appeared in the United States Code. How'd they do that? Never, never signed, passed by the Senate, never signed by the president, never put into the organic statutes at large, but by golly, it shows up as Title 26 in the United States Code, and underneath that, Title 26 Code of Federal Regulations, the, the administrative state. How'd that happen? Kind of unusual, isn't it? That's because in the bankruptcy, the House has exclusive jurisdiction over D.C. So they only passed it for D.C. citizens, and since you're a federal citizen, it now applies to you. Because you answered those two questions, yes. Yeah, I'm a citizen of the United States. Yeah. I'm a resident. Oh, well, I guess Title 26. Let's go back to our formula. You receive civil rights from birth under the 14th Amendment. Therefore, you owe correlative duties like adhering to all regulations that are issued by the administrative state and filing your annual income tax forms. See how that formula works? So... There's a case where it is non-positive law, and it's identified as such. But that's just an example to you to show you this amalgamation of these two different bodies of law in what we call the United States Code. Okay. So underneath that is the Code of Federal Regulations. There's 50 titles. Each title coincides with the title of the United States Code by subject matter so obviously if it's income tax title 26 it's going to be 26 code of federal regulations 
And that's where the law is. You know, if you it, okay, somebody's got a somebody's got a dial tone problem. Okay, if you go back and remember, can we identify where that's coming from? And stop. That's extremely irritating. It is not free conference call, Paul. Okay. So, um, that kind of stuff throws me off. Um, so if you go down, Paul, if you've been around this in this movement for a while, remember 25 years ago, there was a big cry from the Patriot community. Show me the law. It was, uh, in freedom to fascism. I think, uh, Russo also leaned on that a bit. Show me the law. Anyway, uh, Joe Bannister, ex-CID, and Sherry Jackson Peel, ex-IRS, and another couple of defective, defecting IRS agents. Show me the law. And somebody put a $50,000 ad in the uh, Wall Street Journal or New York Times or one of them, a whole page ad. We'll pay you $50,000 if you can show us the law that requires you to pay income tax. You ever hear that, Paul? Yep. Okay, well, you want me to show you the law, Paul? Oh, of course. Show us the law. All right, 26 CFR 1.1-1A. I'm going to repeat that slower if you want to write it down. 26 CFR, Code of Federal Regulations, 1.1-1, parentheses, small a. You can drag it up in a search engine. I'm going to quote it to you. It says, an income tax... Okay. I'll give you a second to drag it up there if you want to follow the bouncing ball. Okay, it states, an income tax is owed by all individuals. That sounds like a law to me, doesn't it to you? An income tax is owed by all individuals who are either citizens of the United States or residents and... To the extent of 871B and 877B, all non-resident alien individuals. Now, that's in the Code of Federal Regulations, and it says an income tax is owed. Sounds pretty damn lawful to me. And it finishes out that paragraph. Did you find it? Okay. Well, it doesn't matter whether you did or not. You can look at it later. Okay. So... One of the things in the way you approach this is to go back to this either-or situation. And you go, there's only two political statuses. You're either free or you're a slave. Okay? And now, since we know their game, and we know who the slaves are, and we read that, and it says an income tax is owed by all individuals, it's interesting that they would put that word in there, individuals, instead of person. But that denotes humans always in law and i can go back and explain it to you from the formula probably should have done it earlier but maybe we can circle back so we already know what the slave is so it says an income tax is owed by all individuals who are either citizens of the united states or these residents that have signed up and naturalized and said i'm gonna they naturalize in dc so naturally they're federal citizens so naturally they owe the correlative duties Okay, 
But it's the second part of that that's a little squirrely. And to the extent of 871B and 877B, there's only two sections of the code. And if you go back and research them, both of them are constitutional taxes. That's why that's in there. One of them, none of us will ever be liable for because it involves true expatriation. Anybody that's repatriated to their national original status is not going to trade their passport for another country's passport. Now, if you do, I'm going to check you for fever and send you on down the road. Okay, But that other one is on things like income from federally incorporated corporations like Union Pacific Railroad. And the case that proves that is Bush Haber versus Union Pacific Railroad, the first case to confront the 16th Amendment, which is about to be confronted again in the next term of the Supreme Court. I don't think it's been looked at by the court since 1916 in Bush Haber. It's going to be looked at again on a conservative court. So whatever findings is going to be very interesting, okay? But so there's two constitutional taxes, 871, 877, but they're only owed by a non-resident alien individual. So when you're reading that, you're going, well, what's Jose the tomato picker doing responsible for two sections of the Internal Revenue Code? Well, here's another example of how they've fooled us. They take a concept and just change the label. Because that is a national. A non-resident alien is a national. But they look at it a different way because you're non-resident to the residency of the 14th Amendment and your state citizenship is alien from the federal citizenship, isn't it? You have to understand how these people think and how they make things applicable. Because we don't think like that. They know very well how we think. That's why they've been so successful at this little slave system. Okay. Now, back to that word individual. Let's go back and cover that. I should have covered it at the first when we are talking about the uh, formula. Because this is how that formula really comes into play. The concept of a legal person, what they didn't teach for six years at that Utah law school, is an entity. You may want to write this one down and certainly commit it to memory. An entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. I'll repeat it. An entity, keyword, entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. So let's take that and our understanding of that formula, and let's go back to the 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States. If you don't know what we're covering here, right here, you think that's everybody, don't you? All persons. You know, it's like that district director of the IRS and that trial with Charlie Gray reading those statutes, those regulations in courtroom and bending his head down looking over those glasses and going, you look like a person to me. 
Now, if Charlie would have known this stuff, he could have said, but Mystic, Mr. District Director, a person is an entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. I'm ascribed no civil rights under the 14th Amendment, and therefore I owe no correlative duties. I'm not that person. I don't know if it had kept Charlie out of jail or not, but it has certainly thrown a hitch in their giddy-up in that court proceeding. An entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. Now, what can those entities be? They can be a trust. They can be a partnership. They can be a corporation. And they can be an individual, a human person. And the reason that they use that... And I, I should say, you know, that's my. this is my litmus test question for any patriot legal researcher. What's the legal concept behind the word person? I've been asking that question for many years. I've never had one American answer it correctly. Never one. But predominantly, they all use the same answer. It's a corporate fiction. Well, that's not wrong, but it's not right. It can be a corporation, but it can also be all these other entities, too. And you see, here's the difference. In a corporation, the rights and the duties are not in the same entity. The corporation has the rights. It's got corporate personhood. It could go out and do business and sign contracts and do all that stuff. But the corporation doesn't have the duties because all you can do is fine a corporation. You can't throw it in jail, can you? So who has the duties in the corporate structure? The board of directors. So if a corporation does something heinous enough, like Union Carbide with Bhopal over in India, where they killed all those people decades ago, you should be able to come in and what they call pierce the corporate veil. And you pierce the corporate veil, and you go get the board of directors, and you throw their sorry asses in jail. But the rights and the duties are not in the same entity, my point. But where are they in the same entity? Humans. So because rights and duties in one entity are indivisible, the word individual comes from the root word indivisible because the rights and the duties are in the same entity. That's why they always call people humans in law individuals because the rights and the duties from that formula are in the same entity okay and that's why it surprises me in that jurisdictional statement there where it says an income tax is owed by all individuals so they absolutely specify humans there and I wonder if they didn't use the word person because a corporation has a whole different tax structure in the way they deal with things. That may be the reason right there. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting. They got individual, and I believe if you look, it's italicized. Okay? So there's an example of how that formula works and how you can apply it. Okay? You're going to have to think through it and 
Yeah, hold on just a second, Paul. All right, hold on just a second, Paul. You're going to have to work with it and, and, and a little bit. It's totally new concept to you. You can apply it all over the place. But this is what I promise you. If you'll take the time to do that, they can never fool you again. Is that enough incentive for you? Now, Paul, what do you want to ask? I was just saying, I was just looking at it. It's not italicized. It's, okay. It's just regular. Okay. Yeah. But there, right there's the law. If 25 years ago you'd have known this, you could have gone and collected 50 grand. Very good. Okay. So... I want to get back on this uh, on this change here and the basis of these different types of laws. It's it's very very well. If you really want to get command of this, you got to know this, okay? And so these self help remedies are what leads tyranny in a respect because they terrorize the people because the people don't understand what we've just covered and they automatically impute to them all this power where if they knew about the affidavit and they go over and take a copy of your affidavit you file with the secretary of state and you put the irs on notice well guess what the irs recognizes it We've never had one single blowback from IRS in all these years. Not one. Well, we've got a couple of letters from them with their with their crap, you know, trying to bluff you. You know, your your account's under review or like they did with Shane, saying they're going to levy a $5,000 frivolous filing penalty. Hey, bitch at the IRS, this wasn't a filing. This was notice, lawful, legal notice. And that's one of the reasons that we have you put that at the head of the cover letter in bold language. Lawful legal notice, not to be considered a filing. Because when you do that, you yank the only club they've got out right out of their hands. Okay? And they stand mute. They're not going to come after people now that you know this and risk getting this information out to the public or to people that could be exposed to it on how to get out of their damn tax system. So that's a check and a balance, kind of, I think, with these guys. Once we know this and we're executing it correctly, they can't afford to come to us because they're scared to death of this. And the more they prosecute it or come after it, the more chance they risk of it being exposed. But what's a national? Wow! What's this non-resident alien thing? How are you using that term? Back to enables them to come grab your stuff. The way they do it is self-help remedies coming back, well, going back thousands of years, folks. Thousands. They are skilled at this code. They know how to twist it, turn it, and weaponize it. This whole uniform commercial code against you. Okay? Point in case in point. People out there in Lahaina, Maui, that had insurance on their houses. Well, a couple of months before the fire, they rezoned. 
and now they had some kind of clause written in the contract. If your house is rezoned, your insurance doesn't apply anymore. So now when they come in to file their claim, they go, oh, you had a rezoning agreement. Sorry, that negates your contract. It's all merchant law. But wouldn't wouldn't the the insurance have to take care of that, Roger? They would have to... Well, I think, well, well, I would think that, well, where's the notice you sent me that that was going to affect me? Good question. Right. Okay. Exactly. Because now you go back to due process. Okay. So, yeah, basically, a breach of contract unless there was notice. Notice to change the contract. Yep. Or notice to let them know that they'd been changed and their contract wouldn't apply anymore. Okay. Now, Paul, let's go back to your deal on this corporate thing because you mentioned it a couple of times, and I wanted to clarify this for you a little bit. Um, supposedly, the District of Columbia or the United States was incorporated in 1871. Okay. Now, Paul, do you know who Larry Beecraft is? Does that name ring a bell with you? Yes. Oh, you know about Larry. Okay. Well, you know, Larry can be controversial, but there's one thing that is not controversial about Larry, and that's his prowess for legal research. He He's excellent at legal research. Okay. So I did a show with Larry one time, uh, and we uh, were talking about our pet peeves in the Patriot community. Mine is this admiralty law thing that you struck a nerve with. Okay. Well, Larry's, it turns out, is this incorporation thing. Okay. I'm so glad I did because this is an excellent uh, dissertation. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So Larry goes back and does research on this 1871 incorporation thing, and he finds that they unincorporated it in 1874. Did you know that? Yeah. Okay, you did. So, yes, it was a corporation. It may still be. They may have redone that. But it was incorporated in 1871. See, here's where our patriot community go. It's a corporation. It's a corporation. They're incorporated. Well, they don't know that it was unincorporated three years later. But let's look at something here. Let's look at the 14th Amendment, which was passed in 1868. Three years before it was incorporated in 71, right? My math's right. Okay. And it says subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Well, it wasn't incorporated in three years later, and we've got the word the singular as opposed to the 13th Amendment where it uses the word there plural. So there's the clear-cut differentiation it's plural in the 13th amendment it's singular in the 14th amendment isn't it before it was incorporated a little food for thought for you okay so that hey roger it's hey, mississippi mama hey mama how you doing sweetie are you getting something out of this this morning Yes, I am. I've been listening, but I do have a question when you have time to answer it. Well, let's have it right now. Oh, okay, then. Once you become a national, is it a problem if you want to have a second passport in another country? Nope. 
Okay. Are you aiming for that Ecuadorian yeah. passport? Well, I'm aiming for that one, but it doesn't seem to be going too well. <laughs> so I'm just going to have to... Well, I'll tell you how I look at this, because I've got the opportunity to do that eventually, if I can get all this visa shit straight. Mm-hmm. But I've got the the possibility to do that, too. But, you know, I've got a passport that identifies me as one of these people with God-given rights that only two groups of people have ever had in the history of the world. Why would I want another passport? Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Well, I see what you're saying. Well, and, and I also have a, a permanent visa in Paraguay. Oh, do you? Oh, you're a resident of Paraguay? Yeah, and I was... Yes, I'm a resident of Paraguay. All right. And in 2020, in March of 2020, I was supposed to finalize my citizenship here in uh, Ecuador. But, of course, the pandemic hit, and it's been a mess trying to get oh, it straightened out ever since. Of course. And then in May of 2020, I was supposed to finalize my citizenship in Paraguay. So I'm still trying to figure, you know, get that worked out. <laughs> Have you been down there? Have you been down to Paraguay? Yes, uh-huh. So I've what'd been you down go? There. You bet what? Go, go, I visa. Right. You uh, go into Ascension? Yeah. Uh, I saw a, uh, you know, you, you know, Paraguay has got a long, I, I don't know how big the group is, but they've got a very established group of Mennonites down there. Is that who you dealt with getting this done? No. Uh, okay. No, no. Well, I was That's up at I was up at Doug Casey's Estancia for a week one time years ago, and they brought some gals over that were Mennonites from Paraguay to talk about Paraguayan residency. So I remember a little bit of it. It's fairly easy to achieve. You don't have to live in the country for set. Work. Someone has her mute open. All right, hold on. Everything stops and everything stops until we get that crap straightened out. Okay. So you don't have to spend six months of the year and all those requirements in Paraguay to get residency, but you got to pay them some money, right? No, I'm, I'm, I don't know when you say pay them some money. You know, I just did the regular fee. You know, okay. an attorney for my uh, the residency. residency. Okay. But I was talking to a fr- I was talking to a friend here in Kotakachi yesterday, and she's interested in a Paraguayan uh, residency. And she said that they have changed it. You used to be able to just go in and get a permanent residency. Now you have to get a temporary residency, like you do here. Like Ecuador. you do here. So. so You've got you've got Paraguayan permanent residency, and you're a resident here too. You're a resident in both countries. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And well, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I would finalize my uh, citizenship here in 2020 of March, and finalize my citizenship in Paraguay in May of 2020. Okay. Well, so this is an turning in. This is a question that came up to me when I was flying up there uh, to Doug Casey's Estancia for that week. And when you get on these planes, they give you a questionnaire and they ask you a bunch of questions. You know what I'm talking about? 
and uh, you know you bring in anything into the country and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the questions on there is it says your country of residency. And at that point, I was illegal in Argentina, and I filed my affidavit years before in the U.S., so I'm not a resident anywhere. You know, everybody on earth is either a resident or a non-resident. Okay? Right. But I had no residency anywhere. So let's go back to our formula. I get God-given rights and owe God my duties, right? Yes. So where's my residency? Oh, okay. You got any idea? Well, your residence is where your residence is where you receive your rights and discharge your duties. And so if you get your rights from God and know you got your duties, then I guess your residency's heaven, isn't it? Well, yeah. Just an interesting little hole in the whole deal there, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Is that uh, because we're in this world and not of this world? Well, I think so. I mean, here's the word you want to use. I'm domiciled in such and such a state. Okay. Okay. Now, interesting on this term residency. And I mentioned it the other day. It just came to me the other day. We were having a conversation with Devin, you know, and it came up. And I remember early on, years ago, one of the listeners sent me copies of of the part of Vettel's Law of Nations that applies to residency. And it's a couple of pages long. And every time he uses the word resident, he uses the word resident alien. He doesn't use the word resident. He says resident alien. Now, if you were asked these questions, are you a citizen of the United States? Are you a resident alien? What would you think? I really, I would, just off the top of my head, based on past thinking, I would just think I was a citizen. Okay. Well, the see red. Well, here's the here's the problem, and this is I think why they did that and dropped alien off of that. And I've maintained for a long time. If some of you want to go back and do the research, the etymology, the research of the word resident, when you find where they dropped alien and added a geographical definition for to complete the equivocation, you're going to find the origins of this scheme we're in. Because that term resonant is the key word of the whole new world order plan is what I've come to understand. It is one of the biggest landmines, okay? So if you saw it resident alien, you're thinking, well, hold it. Residency means I live here. What kind of alien am I? Okay. Well, see, now what Vettel's doing is going off the original origin of the word in diplomatic terms when countries change ambassadors. Because let's say, Mama, if you haven't heard this example, let's say that the uh, ambassador to the U.S. from Ecuador gets caught out there at Dulles Airport with a kilo of cocaine in his diplomatic pouch. What do they do with him? 
They throw him in jail and charge him with trafficking? No. I don't know this. Well, no, I'm going to tell you exactly. I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you exactly what they do with him and exactly why. They put him on a plane back to Ecuador because he's in residence in DC and that means Ecuador's law applies to him, not the United States cuz he's in residence. When they ask you that word, are you a resident? They're saying, "Do the laws of Washington DC and the 14th Amendment applying to federal citizens apply to you?" Okay, I see what you're saying. Okay. More tricks from these little devious, diabolical, slaving bastards. Okay. Okay. I understand. So, keyword, key understanding. Am I gonna? Am I gonna what? citizenship in ecuador i don't know i I probably not because you know why one of the reasons if you're a citizen well i just learned this the other day if you're over 65 you don't have to vote if you're under 65 it's the same way in argentina if you're a citizen you gotta vote and if you don't vote they can come charge you yeah yeah i was reading that today too yeah earlier this morning so uh, more of the facade of elections. So uh, anyway, I don't know. You know, as uh, Ted Kennedy told Mary Jo Kopechnik, we'll drive off that bridge when we get to it. Okay, but see, I, 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 I sat around the table when I was a little kid in Mississippi. My parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, they would always say, um, especially Uncle Al, but he's 96 years old now, still living in Greenville, Mississippi. He would say, y'all chilling? Y'all chilling? For children. Yep. Every rabbit needs more than one hole. And <laughs> when he go down that hole, and I'm a bird, shoot that shotgun, Bugs Bunny, come out of another hole. We got to be nice and polite. Yes, sir, Uncle Al. But, but I didn't... You know, I, I didn't know what he was really talking about, but when I got older and started traveling and learned about having more than one visa, more than one passport, I say, well, this may be what Uncle Albert was talking about. Every rabbit needs more than one hole, one place well, to go, you know? Not, visa. well, and that was common knowledge before we found out there's one hole that's better than the other holes, and that's the one we're chasing right now. I want to go in the hole of freedom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, uh-huh. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. uh, let me let me open the the call. If does anybody have any questions or comments on all this stuff we've covered so far today? Roger, no, but I wanted to add something, Roger. Oh, okay, Merka, and then whoever was saying, I'll get you. Go ahead, Merka. Um, with you mentioned um, national right, and I uh, was, you know, I see a lot of confusion. Where people think that um, our students are not just our students, other students from other groups um, are asking uh, or stating that you need to claim your nation or um, it's like when you when you when you say that you're a national, you need to specifically say where um, so people know, you know, but with our affidavit, we are affirming our national status through the Secretary of State 
And that's, you know, where you claim your nation, United States of America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but, but it sounds like some people think that we have, that you have to specify what state. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because it can be, I could technically is probably the state you were born in. But if you get somebody like Paul here who naturalizes and goes through the process, he wasn't born in a state, was he? Right. He was born in England. What state does he identify with? The state he lives in. That's a moot point. And what they're trying to do is correlate the term state citizen with the national. And the national means you're a state citizen. Doesn't matter what state you lived in. And what's the difference? All people born or naturalized. They're from a foreign country. They naturalize. I guess they'd be a citizen of whatever state they're living in, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? Well, they can't. They weren't born in another one, so that's the only one they can claim, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Who else? So, see, this is... Look, folks, they're looking at it from a different perspective. Here's my perspective. That's okay. Here's my perspective. These guys have gone into a hell of a lot of trouble to hide things like national behind non-resident alien or territorial citizens or the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the united states are equal to the white citizens that's in the code in title 42 sections 1983 and 1986 there you're a white citizen so mama how's it feel being a white citizen Oh, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. It'll, it takes a little acclimation, nope. Mama. Roger. <laughs> consult, I mean, I, consult with Brent. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. I was muted. I, I didn't notice I muted myself again, but the more specific wording was the term national has to be qualified by some nation. No, it doesn't. Well, I, no, it, it's not in, not in their statutes and regulations. It doesn't have to be. Right. Um, but the thing I was thinking was that you are, you are, you're claiming your nation by affirming your the, status as a it national. Need to be qualified. Exactly. Right. See? And so this is more of the confusion taught by people that don't know what they're talking about. And they come up with this term, a state national, an American national. Hell, some of them say an American state national, right? And that's fine. Except that you can't go into any code, any court case, or any regulation and find those terms. That's the problem. What I'm seeing is... The U.S. nationals, state nationals, American state nationals, or foreign national. But you go into, you're going to go into some court and try and defend your position on a label that can't be found in a court case, a statute, or a regulation? How far do you think you're going to get with that defense? And another thing, too, I wanted to share is that the statutes at large, Statute 66, Public Law 414, Definition in Title One, Definition Twenty One is our definition. Right, 
But you see, I can go into a court and drag that out and say, this is in the code, sir. But I can't do that with those other terms, can I? Right. You get my drift here? The key to the matrix is understanding how they've buttonholed these definitions behind these words and using those exact words. That's the key to getting out of this. The other thing ain't the key to getting out of nothing. And it's all in statutes at large, the positive law. So if we need good definitions that a, a... and, okay, and why is that okay? And why is that positive law? Why is Title Eight positive law? Because it was brought over in whole from the Nationality Act of 1940 that's in the Organic Statutes at Large. That's why it's positive law. Thank you, Roger. Okay, now who else is trying to say something? Roger. Yes, sir. Sketch. Uh, this, yeah, this sketch. Uh, I'm wondering so if it works claiming our state citizenship what what constitution state constitution would we be using to defend our position i'd say the original or the revised well i'd say you'd go back to the 1849 constitution in california right and declaration of well, independence I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in oregon so it'd be the oregon well, right, but you're you're so screwed up. You're so screwed up up there, Sketch. I don't know where to send you. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but uh, there's definitely nuts up here, and definitely some fruits, but not as many as down in California. Right. Let's put it that way. Right. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, Sketch. Thank you. So, uh, does anybody else have any questions? I covered a lot of, probably for most of you, totally new information. Okay, some of you have heard bits and pieces of it before. We hadn't done one of these lectures surrounding it in a while. Yeah, Bruce. Uh, One of the concepts that, uh, while you were talking, came to me, and it's a very popular song. It's on the, the dark side of the moon. Right. The population is on the dark side of the moon. They can't see the sunshine or the debris. You know, for many years, that was the number one selling album in history, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It may be eclipsed now by Paul Simon or somebody, but for many years, that was the number one selling album in record history. So, yes, yeah, the dark side of the moon. They're dark. They don't know this stuff. And, the, and unfortunately, there ain't very many people that know how to teach it or know it to teach it. Anna Von Wright certainly doesn't. David Strait certainly doesn't. Even Robert Barnes gets on the on the air and goes, constitutional rights. Well, hell, Robert, the only rights the, that document gives you are civil rights under the 14th Amendment. All the rest of them are for people with God-given rights and their protections. The the the, the right to own and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's a protection, not a right. But see, that's how important it is in learning this stuff and being exact in your words. We, you, you can't see. They set us up with these generalities, and then they come back and use the specificity of some regulation or law to zap you. You got to be specific, and this will hone your thinking. This will teach you in your thinking to be sharp as a laser. Okay. 
But you got to be sharp as a laser to fight these guys and understand what they've done and understand how you can defend your position if you choose to remove yourself from it. Use their exact words. Understand the definitions that are being imputed into those words. Yeah, and remove the patriot mythology verbiage, too. I mean, see, when you do that, there's no ambiguity. If Robert Barnes went on there and said constitutionally protected rights, well, that's just a little bit different, isn't it? Like night and day. And our best attorneys, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, uh, 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 who's the guy from Georgia, uh, Lynn Wood, all these people get up and talk about constitutional rights. You see how important this is, folks? Roger. Yes, Samuel. In the in the Mark Furman case, when in Sipton trial, when uh, he was being uh, cross examined, <laughs> he his his attorneys told him to say he uh, was using his constitutionally protected privileges well they're not privileges they're rights privileges are the civil rights under the 14th amendment because they can give them to you and they can take them away you can't take away god-given well, rights but they have rights uh, under the constitution well, let me, let me privileges well then he then it's a full well, he's 14th amendment citizen period and he was <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But see, here's the crux. They can't take away your God-given rights, but they can trick you into giving them away. And that's what they've done. That's why all this is so complex. That's why everything is framed in opposites. So they can ask you those two questions and get your agreement to their fraud. And with the second question, in essence, you're giving them consent of the governed, which is in the Declaration of Independence. And they can't buy, beg, borrow, or steal. If they if they posed it like this, uh, listen, are, are you this with these civil rights from the federal government, or are you this with these God-given rights? Well, well everybody would easily know the choice, wouldn't they? But they don't do that. They code it and hide it. Are you a citizen of the United States? And they condition you that you are. And so you, just like Polly the parrot, are you a citizen of the United States? Walk, 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 yes. Are you a resident? Walk, walk, yes. Because you don't understand the definitions of those damn terms. And you give away your God-given rights and volunteer into a condition of voluntary servitude under the scope and the purview of the 14th Amendment, which is nothing but a feudal serf. Think it's important? We've talked about admiralty today. I'd like to give you a little bit of what Stamper has to say about it, just for the reason to converse about it. it. it's going to take me a couple of paragraphs here, if you don't mind. Can you boil it down to some bullet points? Not really. You know, it's it won't take me long. Okay, launch into it. In 1860, 
In 1865, the 13th Amendment opened the floodgates for the people to volunteer volunteer into servitude in order to accept the benefits offered by the United States. Yep. The 13th Amendment prohibits involuntary servitude. It does not prohibit voluntary servitude. Correct. In 1817, the 15th Amendment gave that new class of citizen the right to vote in that democracy. The benefits became, uh, benefits came with the new citizenship, but with the benefits also came duties, liabilities, and responsibilities that were totally regulated by the Congress for the District of Columbia and its subjects only. Exactly what, what Harlan, exactly what Harlan said in Downs v. Bidwell. Go ahead. Yes. Here's where we the rubber hits the road. In 1913, the United States began using international private law, parentheses, admiralty, because that facilitated an increase of persons and property for the United States, giving the district courts booty and prize jurisdiction over enemy property within the confines of the American Republic, subject persons and property having the same status. Okay, well, it wouldn't be prize. Hold on, hold on, Samuel, hold on. It wouldn't be prize. That's only on C. It would be booty. They're not the same. Stamper says they're the same, and they're not. One's on land, one's on sea. Well, if a citizen is on a sailing ship and they're a citizen, then it would be a prize, right, or booty. Well, I, I guess. Anyway. You know, okay, Admir- go ahead. Admiralty is a form of military law, and jurisdiction is based upon contract. The adhesion contract between the state citizen and the federal government began to grow. This increase in subject citizen population became the cornerstone for the strategy of expansion. And now the federal government has many subjects because of the benefit derived from the contract. Okay. Federal military jurisdiction was proper because the former living soul mask was replaced with the legal fiction person mask voluntary by contract. Okay, here's my here's my problem with that and Stamper's understanding of it. They just don't go grab your stuff. Oh, oh, that bag there on the on the deck, that's mine. I'm going to take it. They don't do that. There's process involved in anything they takings. Anytime there's process, it's not admiralty law. There is no process for admiralty law. I kick your ass, I take your stuff. That's the process. So, it, it, and I'm not dissing well, Stamper. Says, I'm just saying, I, I just don't think his understanding. I don't think he's his. Saying, int- Roger, he's saying that admiralty law is, is international contract law. Well, that's it's not. There is, is no contract. contract when I there is no there is no. That's maritime law. There's contracts in maritime, not admiralty. Okay. Well, 
you contract to send to send some sort of goods on some ship to someplace else, and there's a contract from the buyer to the seller. Admiralty law is I yank down my false French flag, and I throw up the Jolly Roger, and I board your ship, and I slit your damn throat. That's admiralty law. Now, what the English did years ago was they combined the two. They used to be separate. I don't know what year it was, but I remember John telling us they combined the jurisdictions of admiralty and maritime. Okay, maritime has contracts and a process. Well, hold on the 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 action in in maritime law is called a bill of libel. That's the only action in maritime law is a bill of libel. Well, Roger, I would I would assume when they impress somebody, there's no contract. But when they get people to work for them voluntarily, there is a contract. Well, then that's maritime. To, to You're not out. Oh, okay, so Blackbeard the pirate got contracts from all his pirates to be on his ship. And when they went and, and boarded another ship and took all their gold that they stole, there weren't no contracts, buddy. Yeah, the, the, the bottom line from what Stamper is saying is if you aren't in common law, you're either in equity, admiralty, or maritime. You're you a, have to stay in common you're law. You're a slave. You know, the one point I, I neglected to mention, we were talking about these bodies of law earlier that John laid out in that paper, was on the second page was the law merchant. Okay? And underneath that was the manorial law, or the law of the manor in the feudal system. What law you think they used there? What was the remedy in the feudal system and the remedy in law merchant? Self-help remedies. That was the law, the uniform uh, the uniform commercial code called the Babylonian Merchant Code that was incorporated into the feudal system and they picked it up from all the fairs that would go around Europe that used the same merchant law. So it was the law merchant that overrode for a thousand years the law of the manor. It wasn't admiralty. Roger. Yes. I think what we're dealing with defies definition because what these guys have done is they have cherry-picked everything that they want thrown away everything they don't want, and they've put it together in this mishmash of crud that is undefinable. Well, here's the key point, is the statutes, although in court cases they'll they'll state statutes, but they're not coming after you on statutes. They're coming after you on regulations. Okay? And this is the deep state, is the administrative state state and federal because they've got over 600 federal agencies up there and they've got unelected bureaucrats that interpret the legislation passed by the house and the senate and signed by the president and they reinterpret it in a regulation again 
non-elected bureaucrats. They promulgate regulations called public policy for the serfs. Man-made laws for the serfs. And what's the prime indicator that that's going on? There weren't any administrative agencies before March the 9th of 1933. They didn't have them. They only had them after they changed the system and they had serfs that had to adhere to public policy or man-made laws in the form of regulations promulgated by unelected bureaucrats. Sometimes going 180 degrees against the original intent of the legislation. Mm-hmm. Often, This sort of goes along with what Paul says. You know, Stamper here says court process and procedures are a mix of rules from pre- previous lawful courts and military courts. Sure. And when did they hear? So we built up the code. United States Code started in 1922. And then after the bankruptcy, we went into this void period because they were popping up these administrative agencies like like mushrooms in a cow pasture after a good rain and so some of the people that were filing suits and went to the supreme court overturned the regulations that's when roosevelt stacked the court they didn't adhere because they were going on constitutional law and not being fully informed that all the people are now serfs And so for the first uh, 33 to 46 is 13 years. For the first 13 years, there were no rules for the administrative agencies. They were flying by the seat of their pants. It was in 1946, after World War II, that they passed the Administrative Procedures Act. That's the rule book for the administrative agencies. That lays out the three different types of regulations, who they apply to, how they have to be promulgated, etc., etc. They didn't have the rule book till 13 years after they switched the system. Okay, and that little rule book applies. And the example, the most current one I think I can give you was the CDC mask mandate that got overturned long after the COVID thing. Overturned in a in the middle district of Florida. The judge was a female. She was a clerk for Clarence Thomas. And she overturned that regulation because it was not the proper type of regulation that has general applicability or to the public at large. It was a specific type of regulation called an interpretive regulation that only applied to the CDC. So it was the people inside the CDC that had a mask mandate. Probably most of those bastards didn't even wear one. But they applied it, general applicability, to the whole United States. And that case got overturned. And the Biden administration threatened to appeal it, and they couldn't appeal it because the grounds of that regulation and that law is clearly defined in the Administrative Procedures Act. And that is Title V, 
Title V of the United States Code, Section 552 and following. So all those statutes that that apply to that, that, that are after 552 in Title V, are all the administrative procedures act or the rule book and the rules that these unelected bureaucrats have to follow now that's becoming a big deal recently because we got a whole bunch of agencies including batf and other ones that are out there making regulations when they don't have the backing legislation and that's called agency rulemaking and it's being confronted now particularly in the fifth circuit in new orleans but by several other circuits in different cases too okay so maybe that's a lecture on the whole administrative state regulations what they are how they're promulgated how to find them how to see what they are maybe that's another saturday show there but uh at as it stands we're just about over this one okay so uh, i hope you got something out of today and uh you're gonna have to study a little bit think a little bit Start using your synapses again and get them firing and get this stuff in your belly. You need to know this information and make it yours. It's not some guy on the radio. This is what it is. When you do that, you make the information yours. And when you make this information yours, you're unbeatable. They can't beat you without being open tyrants. Period. End of sentence. So that's how important it is. Hold on, Bruce. We're about to get out of the show here, uh, and we can converse a bit. Uh, So, uh, listen, we'll be back on Monday, of course, on the 21st, I guess. And we'll have John for an hour, and we can get into whatever you want to get to, and there's no telling what's going to happen over the weekend. So uh, we'll see you on Monday. Hopefully have a great rest of your weekend. I'll see you soon.